0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 15 and let me read one verse before we go to the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Romans chapter 15, I want to read the fourth verse. You know that I have spent a number of sermons preaching from the Old Testament. Over the last four years, I've spent a number of sermons preaching biographical sketches of certain men from the Old Testament. And I take as my authority to do that, Romans chapter 15 and verse 4, where the Apostle Paul wrote, For whatsoever things were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the Scriptures might have hope. Now, faith is the substance of things hoped for. Patience has to do with faith. Hope has to do with faith. Comfort is the result of faith. And we are to have an increase in all of those things by taking heed and learning from the Old Testament Scriptures. Two-thirds of your Bible was not written in vain like so many believe today. Two-thirds of your Bible is written there for a practical, day-to-day example of how to live by faith. And hopefully we want to live by faith and we will do so as a result of this 11th chapter of Hebrews. Looking now at Hebrews 11, let us, by the grace and mercy of God this morning, try to finish this chapter. Paul, in this 11th chapter of Hebrews, has been developing the theme of examples. He's argued so far in the book that Jesus Christ and Christianity, the New Testament, and New Testament worship are superior to everything in the Old Testament. And he's raised many arguments that we've rejoiced in as we've seen them of how superior Jesus Christ is to any man-made system of religion, even a divine system of religion that is based upon men being the priests and mediators. And animal sacrifices can never put away sin, but the blood of Christ did once and for all. Then the apostle has warned us that if we do not take heed and we let slip and we fall away, we sin against the knowledge of the truth, we lose our confidence that God is going to be bringing severe judgment upon these Hebrews. So he's tried to exhort them positively. He's tried to threaten them and frightened them negatively. And now in the 11th chapter of Hebrews, he raises a list, a great list, of all the great heroes of the Hebrew nation, the Hebrew elders, and how they obtained a good report. And they obtained a good report through faith in the face of trouble. Faith in the face of trouble marks a good man. Mark's a man that obtains a good report. report. If thou faint in the day of adversity, the Bible says, thou hast little strength. Thy strength is small. If you faint in the day of adversity, you don't have much faith. These examples are given to provoke our faith because we'll never face circumstances like some of these did. And let us this morning read and understand these scriptures and learn from them faith, hope, comfort, and patience from the scriptures because these are Old Testament examples raised in the New Testament to exhort to New Testament diligence. And the Apostle Paul again wrote this same chapter and he wants us to learn from these men. You know, it's not bad to have some sermons in a church that are sort of like Bible story time. To go over the great lives of the great men of the Old Testament. God considers them great men. He calls one of them a man after his own heart. He says here that these men obtained a good report. Enoch, it is said of Enoch that he pleased God. These are the great men of this world and we should learn from them. Let us have a brief word of prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, We thank Thee for the Scriptures, Old Testament and New. We thank Thee that they are found, preserved in the King James Version, that You have left us. O Lord, bless us as we look at the lives of some of these great men from the Old Testament, that we might be provoked in the New Testament, that we might realize the superior benefits we have, that You have provided some better thing for us than You did for any of them. O oh Lord, bless us to that end. I ask in the name of Jesus Christ to the encouraging of the faith of all these that are called His. Amen. Verse 24. Verse 24 of Hebrews chapter 11. And we take up again with the life of Moses. By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the treasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He had respect to some reward that could not be seen visibly, and therefore he chose reproach rather than riches. He chose affliction rather than pleasure. Look at the 25th verse. Choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures. Moses was a great man. He chose affliction rather than pleasure. If there's one thing that characterizes the 20th century, it is that is the most difficult decision any of them can make. Because we live in a generation that always chooses pleasure over affliction. I don't care what area of life you're talking about. They always choose pleasure over affliction. The Bible warned us that in the last days, men would be lovers of pleasures more than lovers of God. It is uh, so interesting and so condemning and so perverse to hear our grandfathers and our fathers, unfortunately, say, life was too hard for me. My son's not going to have to live that way. Well, now, that's a precious thought, isn't it? What they mean by that is, I'm going to spoil my kids rotten with the pleasures of this life so they don't have to endure the hardship that I had to endure, and that my father endured. And we're reaping the results of it. And that's naturally considered. Choosing pleasure over affliction. Listen, the Bible says in the book of Lamentations that for a man to bear the yoke in his youth and to suffer affliction makes him a better man. You cannot make a good man through pleasure. Impossible. Impossible. Why don't you try to convince some sergeant in boot camp of that fact? It's not, it's, I'm not going to make it hard on these boys like it was on me. That man knows the only way to make a man is to be hard on him. But let's not even think about the natural aspect, let's think about the spiritual. Men today cannot choose affliction rather than pleasure. Everything is a choice of pleasure. The easy way out is the choice for most men. Whether it's in a church, in order to have peace, they'll sacrifice purity. Because if they try to maintain purity, they might lose their job. And so many ministers seek pleasure, peace in their congregation, rather than purity, in order to keep their job. This man, in these three verses, gives us an example that we should never forget. Choosing affliction over pleasure, choosing reproach over riches. Are you willing and able to do that? Have you done it this past week as evidenced by your actions. I don't care what you say this morning. Have you shown it this past week in your actions? Do you choose affliction and reproach over pleasure and riches? Look at Acts chapter 7 and let's get Stephen's commentary by the Holy Ghost regarding Moses. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7, verse 20. In which time... Acts chapter 7 and verse 20, this is the time that a Pharaoh rose up that knew not Joseph and dealt wickedly and harshly with the people, in which time Moses was born and was exceeding fair and nourished up in his father's house three months. We studied this one last week. And when he was cast out, Pharaoh's daughter took him up and nourished him for her own son. And Moses was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians and was mighty in words and in deeds. And when he was full, forty years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. And those are the verses that deal with our subject so far from Hebrews chapter 11. By faith Moses, when he was come to years. Now what does the Bible consider coming to years? Coming to maturity. Forty years of age in this case. The Bible gets a little more lenient. A few books later, when it lowers that to 30, being a man coming of years and coming to age, when he would be able to execute some reasonable sense of judgment, had to be 30 years of age. The Savior himself waited until he was 30 years of age before he was baptized to give an indication that youth is not a time of life where great judgment is made, but age and coming of years. When he came to years when he could maturely reflect and consider the choices that he had before him, he made the choice of affliction rather than pleasure. You give me a 15-year-old and what will he choose when it when it is a choice between affliction and pleasure? Pleasure. Why do you think he needs a father? To afflict him instead of letting him run after pleasure you show me the average young man at 20 I guess I'm average at 20 I wasn't very successful at choosing affliction over pleasure and most of you that I've spoken with will agree that at 20 you were not all that wise in choosing affliction over pleasure or reproach over riches it takes maturity therefore God gave us parents but when he became 40 years of age He refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Some of you have given up things to follow Jesus Christ and to be part of this church. Bob Hagler refused to be called the heir apparent of G.I.W. or refused to be called the son of Tom Hagler in that respect, didn't he? And others of you have given up things for the cause of Christ. Moses didn't give up any light sacrifice. Pharaoh's grandson. And may I remind you from what we just read in the book of Acts, he wasn't just any grandson. He was learned in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, and he was mighty in word and deed. Now, I find word very interesting. If he was mighty in word, what does that mean? He was good in a word processor? He was an eloquent, persuasive, forceful speaker. What did he try to pull on God in Exodus chapter 3? Remember in Exodus chapter 3, Oh Lord, I'm a man of slow lips. i got a hair lip. remember Lord? I'm not very eloquent. I'll not be able to speak to the people and persuade them. No wonder the Lord was upset with him over there in Exodus chapter 3. He was a man mighty in word and deed. He had a resume that shocked you. He had a future that was glorious in what he would be able to accomplish in the Egyptian kingdom. But he gave it all up. He gave up the glorious position as Pharaoh's grandson for he already had a great reputation to become one of the afflicted servants of God that were already despised by the Egyptians because they were keepers of sheep. The Egyptians, remember from the book of Genesis, despised farmers and those that kept animals. He gave it all up. Even though he had been well-trained and achieved great things, he gave it all up. He counted it as dung as the Apostle Paul counted all of his training and all of his learning in the wisdom of the Pharisees. Sin is pleasurable. Verse 25 tells us that he chose the affliction of the people of God rather than the pleasures of sin. Sin is pleasurable. I'll never be a minister that stands and tells you sin isn't pleasurable. Because the minute you break down the Word of God, even in that minor point, you're gonna lose people. Because they're gonna lose respect and credit for your Word. Sin is pleasurable. Don't try to tell your children sin doesn't have pleasure. That's ridiculous. They're sitting there listening to you knowing it's pleasurable. Sin is pleasurable. Listen, when David committed adultery with Bathsheba, it was pleasurable. It generally is pleasurable. But do you know how long it lasts? It's called sacrificing the future on the altar of the present because it only lasts for a season. The joy of the hypocrite is short. The book of Job tells us the joy of the hypocrite is short, but there is pleasure. If you, while you're training your children, sit there and tell them that certain things that they may be tempted with at school or by their friends or that it's going on in the world are not pleasurable, you're going to lose them so fast you'll never get them back. Until God works a miracle in their lives. Sin is pleasurable. Tell them that. The decision is a choice between pleasure and fearing God. It's not a choice between nothing and fearing God. It's not a choice between pain and fearing God. There is pleasure out there. The devil will guarantee it. The devil is not so stupid as to try to seduce people with pain. He seduces people with pleasure. Admit it, the Bible does. Sin is pleasurable. Satan guarantees it and wise men will admit it. But it doesn't last long. It doesn't last long. Some of you who have tried things when you were younger, who may have tried things this past week, realize that the sweet joy of sin, the sweetness of bread eaten in secret quickly turns into gravel in your mouth. Especially if you're a child of God, when that conscience strikes you, it is a dagger in your soul, and all the pleasure in the world cannot make up for the pain caused by the dagger in your conscience. It is but for a season, and if God were to let you enjoy the pleasures of sin all your life, a full 80 years of strength, filling your belly with the pleasures of this world, it's going to seem less than a drop in the bucket compared to an eternity in hell and compared to the face of the one you meet on the day of judgment. Even considered that way, it is only for a season. At 40 years of age, he came and looked upon the people of Israel, saw them as servants, saw that they were being oppressed and made his lot with them. Now, he knew that he was one of them. Whether his mother taught him that before she gave him over to Pharaoh's daughter, or whether Pharaoh's daughter told him that, we don't know, but Moses knew. And he chose to align himself with the people of God, even though he would be reproached by those around him. Some of you young people, if you choose to live a life pleasing to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be reproached terrible, isn't it? Someone might call you names. They might shun you from their company. You may not have all the friends in the world. You may not go as far. You will not go as far if you're a Christian and you live up to it. Let me make it simple. But most young people today don't have the guts. They think they're cool, hard, brave, courageous, but they don't have the guts to stand against this world and against friends and against others because they don't have the faith of Moses. Moses left everything he had to join himself to a group of servants instead of being Pharaoh's grandson. He saw the reward. Verse 26, He had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He knew that God would bless him for delighting in him, not only in this world, but also in the world to come. He had respect unto that reward. There isn't a greater example in the Bible of personal sacrifice than of Moses in these three verses. I hope that all of you children and young people will be brave and not be afraid of the reproach or names that others might call you nor giving up things for the cause of Christ. Moses did he was great and he obtained a good report. Verse 27, by faith he forsook Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Let's look at Acts 7 again. Acts chapter 7. Acts chapter 7. Let's again look into the middle of that sermon by Stephen. Let's get verse 23. And when he was full 40 years old, it came into his heart to visit his brethren, the children of Israel. God gave him a heart for wanting to visit the children of Israel. Verse 24. And seeing one of them suffer wrong, he defended him and avenged him that was oppressed and smote the Egyptians. He visited those servants and saw one of the Israelites being abused by an Egyptian. So he killed the Egyptian. He chose sides, the side of the Lord's people, and killed the Egyptian and buried him in the sand, the book of Exodus tells us. Verse 25, here's the reason he did it. For he supposed his brethren would have understood how that God by his hand would deliver them, but they understood not. He had such an influential position of power in the kingdom of the Egyptians, and they knew the story of Joseph. I mean, what had Joseph done just a few years earlier? Delivered the people through his political influence. So Moses felt, all my brethren should understand I'm going to do the same thing for them. But it said they didn't understand that. They were probably right envious of 40 years living in Pharaoh's palace and of all the, rep- the reputation that he had established for himself because, remember... He didn't come and visit his brother until he was 40 years of age. Verse 26, the next day he showed himself unto them, that's to his Hebrew brethren, as they strove, and would have set them at one again. I love that little expression, set them at one again. What does that mean? Set them at peace again. Set them at one mind. Set them at one mind again. Just a little slip in there. It's the way Paul speaks in the New Testament speaks saying, Sirs, ye are brethren, why do ye wrong one to another? But he that did his neighbor wrong thrust him away, saying, Who made thee a ruler and a judge over us? Wilt thou kill me, as thou didst the Egyptian yesterday? Then fled Moses at this saying, and was estranged in the land of Midian, where he begat two sons. Back to Hebrews 11. By faith he forsook Egypt, when he saw the Egyptian oppressing the Israelite, he had a choice to make. He could allow the Egyptian to oppress the Israelite and thus cast his lot with, Is- with the Egyptians and with Pharaoh. Or he could avenge and defend the Israelite. And In those days, things weren't done halfway. You did it all the way. And if he didn't kill the Egyptian, it was going to get back to Pharaoh anyway. So it was a life or a death situation. By faith, he killed the Egyptian, not fearing the wrath of the king. He made a choice. I choose the Israelites rather than the Egyptians. Because some of you may be wondering, why did he run away? He was wise. That's why he ran away. When Pharaoh found out that he had killed the Egyptian, Pharaoh would have killed him and tried to kill him. But by faith and by wisdom, he fled the country. The Bible says the prudent man foreseeth the evil and hides himself And where did Moses hide himself? (laughs) In the wilderness called Midian, where the Midianites and the Amalekites lived. But he did it by faith when he avenged and defended the Israelite and killed the Egyptian oppressor. Look at the second half of that verse. For he endured. He endured. Do you know how long he was in Midian? Forty years. He endured Forty years. This was a pampered man. He had lived in Pharaoh's palace. What did he live like in Midian? The backside of the desert? The wilderness? in tents, A nomad? A keeper of sheep? Reduced to the lowest profession the Egyptians knew. Forty years he put up suffering affliction like that. Where was his God? for forty years. He endured as seeing Him who is invisible. The whole Christian walk is to walk by faith and not by sight. Everything this world has to offer, everything the devil will bring your way is something you can see. It is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. Those are things that can be seen in this world. Most of our young people, most Christians today in America choose the things they can see because they're missing the most important thing in this universe, and that is the being of God Himself, because He is invisible. You cannot see Him, but you can see all the temptations the world wants to give. The nice cars, the beautiful girls, the fancy homes, the better jobs. We can see all that. But those that endure look at something that is invisible, the invisible God. As Colossians chapter 1 would tell us, Jesus Christ was the image of the invisible God. Moses saw God and that made all the difference in the world. He endured... As seeing him who is invisible. For forty years he looked on something he couldn't see, and that was the existence of God. He that cometh to God must believe that he is. Hebrews eleven six, without faith that believes that God is, it is impossible to please him. I don't care whether it's in your home and you endure an afflict an oppressive husband. Endure as seeing him who is invisible. That husband, that God sees everything you're enduring. Husbands, if you've got a wife that you can't get rid of, by scriptural means, and she is a wife that you would rather choose to live in the wilderness, remember, endure as God is there. He sees the oppression that you are suffering. Whatever the case might be, endure through the knowledge of God, as Moses did here in this 27th verse. Verse 28, Through faith he, that is Moses, kept the Passover and the sprinkling of blood, lest he that destroyed the firstborn should touch them. It took faith to keep the Passover. I mean, if you were to have looked at your firstborn son, he may have been 18 years of age. He may have been 45. You looked at him, he was in perfectly good health. He'd been to the doctor last week for a stress test. He was in perfectly good health. The doctor said he was as fit as a horse, as strong as a horse. And you wonder, now wait a minute. Killing a lamb with my children, and sprinkling blood over the door, how is that going to protect my son? That doesn't make sense. What a bizarre request on the part of God. Haven't we sometimes thought that way? About some of God's requests for us? Through faith, he kept the Passover. He went out there, he kept it up three years, he took a good lamb, kept it up three days took it, killed it at the appointed time, let its blood run out into a basin, took a branch of hyssop, sprinkled that blood over the doorposts, the side posts of that doorway. And that night, he kept the Passover by eating that lamb with unleavened bread and bitter herbs with his family with their shoes on ready to go. Because he believed the Lord would pass over their houses and there would be death in the land of Egypt that night and they would need their shoes and bread because they were going to be tra- get their marching orders very soon. And they did. He wrought righteousness, and he obtained the promise. Through faith, he kept the Passover. Verse 29, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land, which the Egyptians are saying to do were drowned. Now by faith they, who is the they there? The children of Israel, the Israelites, the whole nation, By faith they passed through the Red Sea as by dry land. Now, we know this about the children of Israel. When they left Egypt, God had them take a particular route where they would end up facing the Red Sea with nowhere to go. Why did he do that? To put them in a situation where their faith would be tested. And remember, God had told Moses, I'm going to harden Pharaoh's heart Even though he begged you to get out of Egypt and even though he gave you all their riches to get out because of the loss of their firstborn, he's going to have his heart hardened and he's going to follow after you so that I can get final honor upon Pharaoh and his host. So the Egyptians came marching after the Israelites. And we read over there in Exodus chapter 14, the Israelites looked back and there came Pharaoh's army marching after them. And they complained. Weren't there enough graves in Egypt that we could have died there, Moses? Why did you bring us out here to die by the edge of the Red Sea? And Moses said, stand still and watch and see the salvation of the Lord. And that night, God put his pillar of cloud between the Israelites and the Egyptians so the Egyptians couldn't see anything. It was darkness to them and it was light to the Israelites. He kept the two apart all night so they didn't see or touch each other all night long. And all night long, his east wind blew, and that Red Sea just stood up on its, no legs in a sea, but it just stood up in two great walls with dry land in between. Now in the morning, when the Israelites saw the dry land, did they balk, scream, or complain that if they went down in there, the water was going to drown them? Or did they take off and and walk on the dry land? They had vacillating faith when they saw the waters closed before them. But once God opened the waters up, and listen to me, (laughs) going down in there and looking at the waters towering up on both sides of you, that would be intimidating, wouldn't it? They had the faith to do it. You know how terrified we are of certain situations with water. I mean, would you walk down through there, realize, we don't know how far it was, whether it was 3 miles or 20 miles across that sea. At that time, it was enough to drown the entire Egyptian army. It wasn't a puddle. Down in the middle of that, would you be tempted to run back to shore? They, by faith, passed through. It does not say, by faith, the Red Sea opened. I read it for what it says. It says, by faith, they passed through the Red Sea. As by dry land. Moses had the faith to get it open. They had the faith to walk through it which the Egyptians are saying to do, were drowned. Now, the Egyptians had faith, but their faith wasn't in God. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. They had no faith in God. They had faith in themselves. They had faith in their gods, but it didn't help them much. And I was reading that again this week, Exodus chapter 14, where it said the Lord looked. He looked amidst the Egyptian army and He troubled them. He troubled them. God is not so merciful as simply to put the Egyptians out of their misery painlessly. He troubled them. And I remember how He troubled them. He took their wheels off. And I've been over this point so many times before, but I glory in a God that thinks that way. And I hope to God, I'll think that way. He troubled them. And He took their wheels off. And as I've said before, can you imagine being Pharaoh having just been through nine plagues or signs, and having seen the power of God, destroy your firstborn and destroy your nation. I mean, your water, your crops, your livestock, all your gold and silver missing. The nation has been destroyed. And you remember the great power you've seen, the hail from heaven, water turning into blood, frogs coming everywhere. And you know that this water is stacked on both sides of you and would easily overwhelm you if it let go and all the wheels come off of the chariots. What thought would pass through your mind? What thought would pass through your mind? It's God troubling the Egyptian host and letting them fear him for a few moments before they met him personally. Fear. Can you imagine the fear that would have gone through their souls when their wheels came off? And it said they drove furiously trying to get out of there and could not. And God let that sea come back together. They assayed, that is, they tried to get across. But they were drowned, according to Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 29. And the Israelites passed through. Verse 30, by faith the walls of Jericho fell down. Now, what had the faith in this verse? The walls? or the Israelites that circled the walls. This is one of those passive constructions again, like verse 23 when it says, by faith Moses. Now, verse 23 isn't talking about the faith of Moses. It's talking about the faith of Moses' parents. Here it's not talking about the walls having faith. It's talking about those, and I speak as a fool, idiots who walked around the wall seven days in a row and then blasted on their trumpets, (coughs) expecting that's going to win a war. Remember, Joshua brought all the Israelites across the river Jordan up to the city of Jericho that had a great wall. Remember, the spies had said their cities are walled up to heaven. We'll never be able to take them. And God told Joshua, I want you to have the people with the priests in front with horns to walk around that city one time each day for six days. And then on the seventh day, I want you to march around that city seven times. Now, remember, the inhabitants of Jericho were utterly terrified of the Israelites. Can you imagine them up there with all their weapons of war? Here come the Israelites. You know, they're saying their prayers. They're crossing themselves as the Israelites approach. And they march around the city and go back to their camp. Can you imagine the secretary of war of Jericho meeting with his cabinet that night? What is going on here? Now they'd heard enough about the Israelites to know that the God, there was a God with them that they didn't know. And they did that the second day, and the third day, and the fourth day, and the sixth day. And then the seventh day, they walked around it seven times around that city. You can imagine by the seventh time, the people watching would be getting tired and the people marching would be getting tired. But by (laughs) faith, they did it. This is the, when God asks you to do something, and I speak as a fool, stupid. What do you do? Is ba- how intelligent is baptism? Now I know you may not have run into very many pastors that ridicule baptism, and I ridicule it in a way that I hope you understand. It is a foolish ordinance God has ordained to test your faith, right. just like marching around the city of Jericho. Listen, God didn't ask us to give a thousand dollars or two years' wages in order to show that we're sincere in our faith. He asked if we'd be dunked in water. Big difference. One is far superior to the other as a true test of religion. Men will give great gifts of money to religious organizations because it builds human pride. But who was ever baptized for human pride? On a comparative basis. They marched around that city, and on the seventh time, the priests and others blasted with their trumpets and the people shouted and the walls fell down. By faith, they did what God said regardless of the fact they couldn't see how it was going to work. I mean, was there a scientific explanation of how a great noise and trampling on the ground 13 times was it the unlucky number that caused the city walls to fall down? What caused the walls to fall down? God did. Why did he ask them to do something so ridiculous? Why didn't they have a great altar set up and offer a thousand sheep with the whole nation there and read out of the word of God from morning until evening? Why hasn't he called Christians to join monasteries and sit around with beads and pray all day? He's called us to join little churches that meet in basements of holiday inns he has called his people to do weird and strange things to test their true faith by faith they did it and the walls fell flat and they took the city that was in verse 30 verse 31 by faith the harlot rahab perished not with them that believed not when she had received the spies with peace now so far in the book of in the 11th chapter of hebrews we have dealt with some rather noble characters. Enoch, Noah, Abraham, Sarah, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, Moses. Now what do we deal with? And this is comforting for the Lord's people if there's comfort to be had from the Word of God. A prostitute. And brethren, the majority of the commentaries I have try to make the word prostitute and harlot that occurs here and in the Old Testament the word hostess. She kept a hotel. Rahab was in harlot. She did not keep a hotel unless she was going to use the rooms. Hostess. Those prudes. They make me sick. I gag once a week reading them. They think they're righteous. They're prudes. She wasn't any hostess. She was a prostitute that sold her body for money. And if you were a spy going into a city, where would you go to be the least recognized? You would go to a harlot's house. So they did. The two spies went to the house of Rahab. Joshua chapter 2 tells us all about it. Isn't it interesting God has chosen the poor of this world Rich in faith. When I read about the ministry of Jesus Christ, Matthew 21 and verse 31, I read that the Pharisees and the scribes did not go into the kingdom of God. They were not baptized by John. Who was baptized by John? The publicans and the harlots. The publicans and the harlots. God has chosen the prostitutes, the lowly ones of this world, the great sinners, of this world, upon which to show His mercy. And if you don't get comfort in that this morning, I don't know how to give you comfort. Some of you have items in your past that you rue the day you ever committed those sins against God. You can think about events similar, maybe, to what Rahab committed over and over again for hire. And yet God has chosen people like that to shower His love upon and to grant grace and mercy to that they might have faith. He has chosen the poor of this world rich in faith. And those high and mighty, prude, self-righteous people that claim and broadcast their religion before men, He's left them destitute. That's the God we serve and worship. He's a God that came into the world to save sinners. He did not come to save the righteous. He came to save sinners. And may God bless us when we look at verse 31. Don't you... There isn't anyone in this room that can ever say, I can't be a great man or a great woman like this chapter describes because I've got a terrible past filled with iniquities and sins that God can never overlook. Ha! Ha! Laugh at it through the mercy of Jesus Christ and His shed blood. God's able to laugh at it and He picked Rahab and gave her great faith. My, that woman as soon as she had hid them in the flax of stock, lied to to the rulers of Jericho. So they went busting out the city gates trying to find the spies out on the hillside. Didn't even check the house. It Doesn't even tell us they checked the house because her story was so good. Yes, two men did come. I wasn't sure where they were from. And they left just as it was getting dark before the gate was closed. If you'll hurry, you can catch them. Now what would you do? Delay and search the house or run out the city gates and try to find the two spies? She was superb. And then she went upstairs and she got down in those in that flax that was laying there with those two spies and she said, I believe that the God of Israel is the God of heaven and earth. This, these nations in here are terrified of them. And will you show me mercy for just having saved your lives? And they said, we will be guiltless of this oath. We will save your life. And they They made instructions of how she was to hang a scarlet thread out her window. That would be her sign of faith. And when they marched around that city and the walls fell down, there was one section of that wall that did not fall down. And that's where Rahab lived. Can you imagine that? Rahab huddled in there with her family and everything just... (laughs) We can't even imagine it. I mean, everything just crumbles. And that woman, a prostitute, you think if she had faith, she had a guilty conscience? You bet she had a guilty conscience. She didn't know about the blood sacrifice of jesus christ yet but she knew that there was only one thing to trust in in this world and that was the almighty god of israel and her house was standing with her families by faith she chose to go against her religion her culture her city her rulers everyone a woman may god bless us to have some women that will stand up against husbands children fathers parents friends families houses whatever in order to follow the Lord as Rahab did. And we read in the Word of God that that act of hiding those spies and lying to the the rulers of her city and protecting them was an act that justified her as well as Abraham offering Isaac on Mount Moriah. James chapter 2, verse 32. I don't have time this morning to make a point that I had here. Some would say, well, Listen, some, all the commentators again, all the commentators, guess what? Rahab had faith, but God was merciful in overlooking her lies to the leaders of Jericho. Forget it. That was her act of faith. That was. She didn't do anything else. Hiding the spies is a lie, first of all. Then lying about their whereabouts is another lie. The Bible is filled with people who lied and God blessed them for it, like Rahab. She saved their lives. If she just stood there and said, I must tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, they're upstairs under the flax. Go get them. I mean, that's ridiculous. She bore false witness against anyone. Who'd she hurt? Who'd she save? She saved life. If you pick on Rahab, there's 50 other examples that I have. I'd like to meet some of those commentators and sit down with them over lunch sometime and ask them what they do in Joshua. I haven't read this one yet. <laughs> Joshua chapter 8, when Joshua took the city of Ai. Remember, he sent a little band right straight up toward the city gate. And he said, now, when the people come out, I want you to run before them like you're being beat. And we're going to be gathered on the other side of the city. And when you draw the, the, the inhabitants out, then we'll enter in, burn up the city, we'll turn around, and then you start fighting and we'll have them trapped. I mean, that's the greatest strategy you can imagine. That's beautiful. But it's all based on deception. If you're not past grade school yet, I don't know how to get you there. This is the difference between reading the Bible like a Puritan self-righteous Pharisee or reading it the way God intended it. The Bible is filled with examples like that. I mean, I read about Jehu saying, If Ahab worshipped Baal... I'm going to worship him more. And what God say? You did everything that was in my heart and you did it exceedingly well. Remember? And he went in there to offer the sacrifice to Baal himself and then he turned it into a public toilet. All through subterfuge to honor God and to put away those whose lives didn't even exist as far as God was concerned. Moving on to verse 32 and what shall I more say? Listen, Paul's been going through this hall of faith I mean, it's as if you were at Canton, Ohio, and you've been wandering around the halls, and you say, who else is there to look at? I mean, Paul's been laboring the point for a while, hasn't he? All the way from Abel in verse 4 down to Rahab in verse 31. And what shall I more say? If you haven't been convinced yet, can I raise anyone else to convince you? Well, in case you haven't been convinced, Paul goes on to say, for the time would fail me to tell. He said, I just don't have time. I'm running out of ink. I'm running out of years to sit here and write paragraphs about these individual men and women. The time would fail to tell of Gideon. What did Gideon do to show his faith in God? The first thing God did was appear to him and say, Go up and tear down your father's images to Baal. So Gideon got up one night, said he was afraid to do it during the daytime. Remember, Gideon was always borderline, but guess what? He made it to the Hall of Faith. We can't deny it. Isn't that comforting? Do you ever feel a little bit more like Gideon than you do Jehu or Moses sometimes or Abraham offering your son on, a, on an altar? Gideon made it here. Why did God stick Gideon in here? To profit us. Patience and comfort of the scriptures. Listen, if they were all like Abraham, how comforting would it be? Not very. But if you get a Gideon stuck in here, it's comforting. He went up by night and tore down the images of Baal. In the morning, the men of the city came to Gideon's father and said, Your son told tore down the idols to Baal last night. And they were all upset about it. And Gideon's, this, i got to tell you, i got to remind you of this one. I love it so much. And Gideon's father, all of a sudden, it's like the Lord let him, you know, the light came on. Another idea, the brilliant idea. Gideon's father said, now wait a minute, if Baal's God, what are you here complaining to me that his idols fell down? Let Baal plead for himself. <laughs> Isn't that beautiful? Let Baal plead for himself. And you know what? Gideon's name was changed to Jerob Baal. You know what Jerob Baal means? Let Baal plead for himself. <laughs> I love that man. Let Baal plead for himself. It's as if Gideon's father all of a sudden realized, this is ridiculous. What are they complaining to me? How about our God for? Let Baal plead for himself. That's the first thing Gideon did by faith. Now Gideon had a few doubts about taking on the Midianites. The Midianites say, the Bible tells us, were encamped in a valley as the grasshoppers, as the sandwiches by the seashore, innumerable. A tremendous host of Midianites were coming against the Israelites. So Gideon raises a great army to fight the Midianites. God appears to him in the night and says, I want you to tell all the men, if you're afraid, go home. So he told all the men, if you're afraid, go home. Most of them went home. There were 10,000 left. Now 10,000 compared to an innumerable multitude is nothing. then the Lord appeared to him and said, you've got 10,000, it's too many for me. I don't like the odds. He said, "Take them down to the water and see how they drink. And every one that kneels and puts places it in his hands and brings it to his mouth, keep them." And so Gideon did that. Took them down to the water and watched how the observed how they drank and picked the ones that God had chosen. And there were how many? Three hundred left to go against the Midianites. And Gideon said, "Are you sure?" And God said, "I'm. Sh- I'm just summarizing it. I'm sure." But I want you to carry something in your two hands. And it's not a sword. And it wasn't a spear. And it wasn't a bow and arrow. I want a trumpet in your right hand. And I want a lantern in your left hand. Okay. Is there faith involved here? Can you? Did the Lord help Gideon out? Yes. Gideon went down by the camp that night. And God let him overhear a dream. Where a Midianite man awoke in the night after having had a dream. And I wonder how he understood it. But anyway, he understood it. But the man related the dream that something fell into the camp. Barley corn fell into the camp and destroyed the camp. And so Gideon knew that God was going to destroy the Midianites. So that night they broke into three bands of a hundred each. They approached the camp. They blasted on their trumpets. They broke their lanterns so that the light would show. Coming in from three different directions. And they shouted the sword of the Lord and of Gideon. And the Midianites arose and killed each other and fled. By faith, Gideon overthrew the Midianites. Isn't that glorious? But now look at how God made him do it. Why didn't God have him spend ten years developing a well-trained army? Instead, he does it with 300 because those are the odds my God likes. He'd rather do it with a few than with many. By faith, Gideon. Barak. How many of you even know about Barak? Barak was a man that God raised up to deliver Israel from Jabin, king of the Canaanites. The general of the Canaanites was Sisera. Barak would never have made it without two women. Deborah. I don't know why God put Barak in here and didn't put Deborah. Deborah because Barak said, if you won't go with me, I won't go. I mean, he was not exactly the bravest man that ever walked on this earth. If Deborah wouldn't go with him, he wouldn't go to battle. But Deborah agreed to support him. And so the two of them were leaders over Israel. And then, remember, it was Sisera that fled to the tent of one Heber the Kenite, whose wife was home that day from work. Her name was Jael, and she put a tent stake through Sisera's head. So Barak had the help of two women, but they overthrew Jabin, king of the Canaanites. And Barak here is listed for his faith, even though his faith depended on the greater faith of a woman. Deborah. Helpful? Helpful? And of Samson. We look at Samson and we wonder, was Samson a very faithful man? How about the time he came upon a lion? What did he do? Took it and ripped its jaws apart. Now, that took some faith. But I think the greatest example of faith in the life of Samson was when he had been grinding in the prison house of the Philistines and they brought him forth to make fun of him. He had faith because he called upon God one last time. And God gave him back his strength. And he pulled that temple down and destroyed more in his death than during his entire lifetime, and that was quite a number. I read that one time after a battle when he killed a thousand Philistines with a jawbone of an ass, he prayed for God to have water come out of the jawbone, and sure enough, God gave him water, and his thirst was satiated. Samson, though he made a mess of his life, there's comfort here, brethren. The things that were written aforetime were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort might have hope. Though you may be weak in faith and though you may make some great blunders in some areas of your lives, Samson is recorded in the hall of faith with a good report. Of Jephthah, you impulsive cholerics, you want Jephthah in Hebrews chapter 11. If there was ever an impulsive choleric, it was Jephthah. Jephthah was a bastard, the son of a prostitute. His legitimate brothers threw him out of the house. He had to go live in a cave. And all the vain men of Israel, it said, came and joined themselves to him. But you get raised like that, you raise raised tough. That's a hard life. And Jephthah was one tough man. And when the Ammonites came to overthrow the nation of Israel, guess who Israel wanted to lead them in battle? Jephthah. There wasn't a tougher man in Israel. A mighty man of valor, the Bible tells us, And I remember it was Jephthah who said, God, if you'll give me the victory over the Ammonites, I will give you in burnt sacrifice the first thing that meets me on my return from victory. And on his return from a great and glorious victory over the Ammonites, what did he meet? But his only daughter, he had neither son nor other daughter. I wish Jephthah's daughter had been mentioned here because Jephthah Jephthah wept and grieved. Over his impetuous, impulsive vow. Having done that. And the daughter said, Father, if you vowed, then do it. What a glorious attitude on the part of that daughter. It's, Judges chapter 11 is fantastic to read about the, the, the attitude of that daughter. Would to God we can have some daughters like that. They would fear nothing but God Himself and that to obey Him is better than any measure of personal security. Jephthah won a great victory and obeyed God and he is mentioned here also. Impulsive, bad background, illegitimate child but God mentions him with a good report in the Hall of Faith. David is mentioned. We know the stories of David whether it be taking the bear and the lion or whether it be taking Goliath whether it be running from Saul or whether it be taking the Philistines, or whether it be listening to God when God said, I don't want you to build my temple. Did that take some faith? David had all that wealth accumulated and David wanted to build God a temple so desperately and God said, I don't want you to build it. Your son's going to build it for me. And he didn't build it. Can you imagine how crushing that would have been? And he goes on to pray and thank God that God's going to deal bountifully with his house and that his son would build the temple for the Lord. That, to me, is a different kind of faith in the life of David. And Samuel. We read about Samuel. He didn't anoint the oldest of Jesse's sons, nor the second oldest, but he anointed David, the runt that was keeping sheep. We read about Samuel that he offered a suckling lamb one time in faith before God, which is called the Stone of Ebenezer, when God delivered Israel from the Philistines. I read one time when King Saul wouldn't kill Agag, of the Amalekites. And I read that Samuel took his sword out and hewed him in pieces on the spot by faith, knowing that is what God had commanded, showing faith where King Saul did not have any. Then the apostle stops mentioning names. Well, he mentions prophets. You can think of Elijah calling fire down from heaven. You can think of Elisha cursing 42 children in the name of the Lord. And you can think of other examples of the prophets. But in verse 33, Paul just begins enumerating some of their deeds. Who through faith subdued kingdoms. Joshua subdued the seven nations of Canaan so that the land became theirs according to God's promise to Abraham. David subdued the kingdom of the Jebusites and the Philistines. Look at Second Samuel 5. I want to look at just a couple passages. That I find interesting. If God would take time to practically illustrate faith with some of these examples, I think we ought to take the time to remind ourselves of some of them. Second Samuel chapter five. David has been king and he's been living in Hebron. Now, where did God want his king to live? In Jerusalem. Verse 6, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem unto the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, which spake unto David, saying, Except thou take away the blind and the lame, thou shalt not come in hither, thinking David cannot come in hither. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, the same as the city of David. Why, those Jebusites stood on the impregnable... Yes, Jerusalem was an impregnable city because it stood on Mount Zion. Those Jebusites said, listen, if we put the lame and the blind up here to defend the city, you couldn't come in and take it. Well, I read the next verse that David took it. By faith he subdued kingdoms. And one of those kingdoms was the kingdom of the Jebusites. Who through faith subdued kingdoms wrought righteousness. Can you think of a better example of working righteousness than Phinehas? Who when an Israelite man and a Moabitish woman were committing whoredom in a tent... And the plague of God was already upon the children of Israel. He took his javelin and went into that tent and impaled them both. And God said, I've made an everlasting covenant with Phinehas for the integrity and righteousness and zeal for me that he's shown this day. There is by faith working righteousness. Oh, I've got more examples on this page than I could preach in a month. But you'll have to look at them later. We'll go quickly who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises. I read of two men who obtained the promised land. And I think Caleb deserves mention here, who through faith obtained promises. Caleb had faith in God when the rest of the nation did not. And 40 years later, he obtained the promise of living in Canaan's fair land. By faith, he stood against the crowd and I've preached on his life. He did it by faith. They stopped the mouths of lions. Verse 33. Can any guess here who that would be? Daniel stopped the mouths of lion by faith in his God. He would not stop praying three times a day as his custom was, even though Darius had ordered it so that there were to be no prayers offered for 30 days but to the gods of the Medes and the Persians. And David would not bow, but in faith, He obeyed God, and God delivered him from the mouths of lions. Name two other men who were delivered from the mouths of lions. We've already mentioned both of them. David, Samson. Verse 34, quench the violence of fire. Do you have difficulty with that one? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three Hebrew men who would not bow to Nebuchadnezzar's fiery image, escaped the edge of the sword. Joseph, David, Moses, many escaped the edge of the sword. Out of weakness were made strong. Samson made strong out of weakness. Hezekiah, remember when he was weak, he was going to die. He turned to the wall and prayed a brief prayer. And God immediately added 15 years to his life. Waxed valiant in fight. Can you think of any that waxed valiant in fight? Boldness. I love boldness. Look at Judges chapter 3. These are men that we don't hear much of, but Paul preaches them in the New Testament. For those who don't like Bible stories from the Old Testament, if these men don't provoke your faith, I don't know how to provoke it. Paul thinks it should. The Holy Spirit, let's say, thinks it should. Judges chapter 3 and verse 31 And after him was Shamgar, the son of Anath, which slew of the Philistines six hundred men with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. Now that's a valiant man. When you can take an ox goad, all it is is a pointed stick by which you'd stick the oxen in front of you to make sure they kept working that day. And he killed six hundred Philistines with it. And he delivered Israel, waxed valiant in fight. Look at 1 Samuel 14. This is one of my favorite examples, given uh, God's preference for odds. Remember in Gideon, Gideon wanted the Lord wanted Gideon's army reduced to 300. Well, here's a man whose name I bear that wanted them reduced further than that. 1 Samuel chapter 14, verse 1. Now it came to pass upon a day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said unto the young man that bare his armor, that is, he said to his armor bearer, come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he told not his father. Verse 6, i, I got to shorten this. Verse 6, the armor-bearer obviously must have had a few questions to Jonathan. How, bo- how proper is it for us two to go take on an entire garrison of the Philistines? In verse 6, Jonathan said to the young man that bare his armor, Come, and let us go over unto the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us. For there is no restraint to the Lord to save by many or by few. Jonathan understood God's nature. And he said, come, let us go. It may be. The righteous are bold as a lion. Now is that boldness? It may be. We will go into such and such a city and continue there a year and buy and sell and get gain if the Lord will. He cast himself upon the mercy and faithfulness of God, knowing that God loves boldness. And so two men went. you think God's going to let two men that have faith in him get taken apart by uncircumcised, idol-worshiping Philistines? Jonathan wrought a great victory that day. They waxed valiant in fight. Hebrews chapter 11. They turned to flight the armies, of the aliens. And brethren, they didn't do it with Starship 1 or 2 or 3. These aliens were strangers. Aliens to the commonwealth of Israel, as Paul would describe it in another place. They turned to flight armies. I mean, time doesn't allow me to tell to remind you in detail of Jehoshaphat, who sang, who simply took all Israel and said, stand still and see the salvation of God. And they sang. And they killed each other the nations that had come to destroy them. They turned to flight the armies of the aliens. Verse 35, women received their dead, raised to life again. The widow of Sarepta had her son raised by Elijah, the Shunammite woman that built Elisha a cabin, and then God gave her a son. That son died one day, and Elisha raised it to life. Two women received their dead, raised to life again. And others were tortured, Not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Now we don't have an example in the Old Testament of anyone being tortured and then denying reprieve by forsaking their God. They weren't tortured. They were put to death or tortured. We don't have an example of that in the Bible. We can think of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, but they weren't tortured. They were threatened. Daniel was put in a lion's den, but they didn't put him in there for torture. They put him in there for death. There's no example. Would you boys pass those sheets out? While these sheets are being passed out, look at Daniel chapter 11. Daniel chapter 11. I'm going to commit heresy this morning. I speak as a fool. I'm passing out two pages from the book of Maccabees. Daniel, Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11 is a genealogy or a list of all the Hebrew elders that obtained a good report through faith. There is a 400-year period between the end of the book of Malachi and Matthew chapter 3. That 400-year period is not covered by any Old Testament book. But we are told about the time of that 400 years in Daniel chapter 11. And I read this to you last Sunday, and I'll read it again. Daniel 11 in this section is dealing with the time of the Jews under the persecution by Antiochus Epiphanes. And I read in Daniel 11.32, And such as do wickedly against the covenant shall he corrupt by flatteries. But the people that do know their God shall be strong and do exploits. Now, Daniel, in prophecy, tells us during this king that will come out of the Grecian Empire, there'll be some Israelites that will know their God, they'll be strong, and they'll do exploits. Now, Paul, in Hebrews 11, is mentioning everyone that by faith did exploits. We have a future reference, and we have a backward reference to this period of time. There's no one in the Bible described as being tortured. I don't have time to elaborate on this at all, but just look at it. The first page is to show you what the book of Maccabees is. It is a history of the Jews under Antiochus Epiphanes. It's highlighted for you in verse 10 of chapter 1 of the first book. If you'll... And it, it, it bothers me and frustrates me that people don't understand the value of Maccabees and Josephus. If you didn't have Maccabees and Josephus, you wouldn't understand squat about the book of Daniel. You, wouldn't, you couldn't understand it. When it talks about a he-goat arising that would thrust against the Medo-Persian Empire and it would have a notable horn coming out of it and that notable horn would be broken and for it four smaller horns would stand up, what is that talking about? Well, if you haven't read Maccabees, or Josephus, or a history book, you don't know anything about it. You just think Daniel's talking about horns on two animals. Who is the notable horn? First Maccabees chapter 1 tells us. Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great, and it describes how he overthrew the Medes and the Persians in verse 1. And then it goes on to describe the four horns that sprang up in place of it. The four generals that Alexander gave his kingdom to, before he died. And then after that, out of one of those kingdoms, a breakdown of the Greek empire, sprang a little horn that would do great violence to the people of God. And what was that horn? And that horn, according to Daniel chapter 11, would make war against the king of the south. That means he would fight against the king of Egypt. The Ptolemies were in Egypt. The Seleucids were in Antioch of Syria. And I've preached all this before, but I need to remind some of you Antiochus Epiphanes tried to make war against the Ptolemies of Egypt. Everyone knows that if you've read some history books, Daniel told us about it and we confirm it in history. We know it's true, but where were Daniel's prophecies confirmed and fulfilled? Now turn the page. 2nd Maccabees chapters 6 and 7 describe the tortures Antiochus Epiphanes wrought on the Israelites. In verse 18, which I have highlighted for you, it describes a 90-year-old scribe named Eliezer, who they tried to force to eat swine's flesh. Remember, a Jew couldn't eat pork. Because this man had built such a reputation even with the Greeks, they tried, I'm just summarizing what you'll find here and you can read later, they offered to give him some beef or other meat that he could eat that would appear like he was eating swine's flesh. And he said, no, I can't do that because I'd give a poor example to the younger people. They'd think I had compromised my religion. And while, and even if they didn't know, God in heaven would know that I was compromising out of fear. So he was put to death. Second Maccabees chapter 7 describes a mother with seven children. And those children are tortured one by one. Their tongues are cut out. Their arms and legs are cut off. and They're put in frying pans and fried in front of the other brothers and the mother that remains. All the time... Efforts being made to try to get them to deny the God of Israel and to eat swine's flesh, and they would not. And so they all suffered that death, and it describes it in rather gruesome detail as the Bible's as the Bible itself is known for, while this is not the Bible. Remember, first and second Maccabees and some of the other books are apocryphal writings. They're not considered part of the canon of Scripture. But without An understanding of what took place for 400 years, you're lost with the book of Daniel. Remember, Daniel was in the kingdom of the Babylonians, and he was in the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians. Who ever lived in the kingdom of the Grecians that wrote about it in the Bible? No one, because 30 years before Christ, the Romans beat the Grecians. So there's that 300-year time period in there of the Greek Empire that Daniel told us extensively about. I mean, do you remember Daniel chapter 11? War after war after war. The king of the north against the king of the south. The king of the south against the king of the north. The flatteries, the covenants, women. What's that woman's name? That he, I just forgot her name. That woman, the, Cleopatra. Cleopatra is mentioned in Daniel chapter 11 as they used her to try to win victory by subterfuge. I just give you that because Paul is speaking to Hebrews who knew about the Maccabees as well as they knew about Abraham, because the Maccabees had just lived and died. The Maccabees were a family, that's why it's called First and Second Maccabees, that opposed Antiochus Epiphanes. And when we read some expressions here that match up with Daniel, but we don't find them anywhere else in the Bible, guess where they were fulfilled? during that time period. Daniel chapter 11. They were tortured, verse 35, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. They had hope of the resurrection. And if you'll read 2 Maccabees chapter 7, you will find those seven sons, which is as valid as any history book. Some of you teach your kids that Columbus discovered America in 1482. How do you know? It's as valid as any history book that those seven sons had hope of the resurrection, and that's why they wouldn't bow down before Antiochus Epiphanes and eat swine's flesh. They were tortured, not accepting deliverance. If there were other cases of that in the Old Testament by Isaiah or by others, we don't know of them. God left His words silent on them. But He didn't leave Himself silent on the Maccabees. He said there will be a people that do know their God And be strong and do exploits. And they were during the time of the Greek Empire. Now you find who those people are. Verse 36. Others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings. Yea, moreover, of bonds and imprisonment. Joseph was put in prison. Micah, the prophet of God before Ahab, was mocked and ridiculed and slapped. There in 1 Kings 22. Verse 37. They were stoned. The last martyr to die in the Old Testament was stoned near the altar. That's why the Lord said in Matthew chapter 23 that all the righteous blood from Abel unto Zechariah would be brought upon that generation. He was the last martyr. How did he die? He died by stoning. The Old Testament tells us about it. They were sawn asunder. How does that sound like a pleasant way to go? Be put in front of a band, saw and be cut from one end to the other, not sideways. They didn't do it that way. You say, that's terrible. Look at 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, they were sawn asunder. Only the faithful can handle passages of Scripture like this. We live in such a pretty, tensile, superficial, polite, courteous, genteel, civilized, cultured generation that most men can't even understand a world like this. We don't have an example in the Bible of a saint of God being sawn asunder. But we do have saints of God in the Bible sawing other men asunder. I want to show you that the man that was after God's own heart, the sweet psalmist of Israel, had a practice of sawing men in half and chopping them up with axes. 2 Samuel 12 and verse 31. You can see verse 29. It's talking about David taking the capital city of the Ammonites, Rabbah. Verse 30, he took the king's crown off his head and put it on his own head. Verse 31, and he brought forth the people that were therein. And put them under saws. That does not mean he had a big junk pile, but he put all the people at the bottom. Because if you'll go read first Chronicles chapter twenty and verse three, he'll say he cut them in half. He brought forth the people that were therein and put them under saws and under harrows of iron. That was a cultivating tool that broke up the clods in a field. Maybe some of you have seen it a great big heavy chunk of wood with metal spikes coming down out of it to break up the clods after a field has been ploughed. He put them under saws and under harrows of iron and under axes of iron and made them pass through the brick kiln. He cut and chopped them up into pieces and fed them through a brick kiln. And thus did he unto all the cities of the children of Ammon. So David and all the people returned unto Jerusalem. Now don't we live in a sissified age? The Geneva Convention. You've got to use full metal jacket. Can't even use a a lead bullet. Isn't that pitiful? What's your point? If you can't relate to the severity of God's judgment, you cannot relate to what God thinks of sin. Cutting and chopping up the Ammonites and putting them through a brick kiln is an indication of what God thought of the Ammonites. It also tells you what kind of a man is a man after God's own heart. He doesn't just sit around plinking on a harp all day. But the saints of God received that treatment also. They were sawn asunder. Hebrews 11.37, they were stoned. They were sawn asunder. They were tempted. Job was tempted. Others were tempted. Think of the three Hebrew men. When they had the opportunity, if you'll bow down before the golden image, I'll not throw you into this fiery furnace. Is that a temptation? They were tempted. But they went ahead into the fiery furnace. They said, we are not careful to answer thee in this matter, O king. We are not careful, they said. They were tempted. They were slain with the sword. There are many examples in the Bible that were slain with the sword. Jezebel killed many of the prophets of God by the sword. Ahimelech, the priest that helped David that one time. Remember when Ahimelech gave David the showbread and he gave him Goliath's sword? King Saul came and Doeg the Edomite killed Ahimelech and all his sons, the priestly family. We read, they wandered about in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. Can you think of any men in the Word of God that by faith wandered about in caves? David. Elijah. In deserts and in the wilderness, they wandered about. They sheepskins and goatskins. Elijah, the Tishbite, wore a hairy leather garment. And so did John the Baptist, and he was in the spirit and power of Elijah. And we read over in Zechariah chapter 13 and verse 4 that the garments of the prophets were that way because they were a despised and neglected group of men. We look at verse 37 and we see three words ending that verse. They were destitute, afflicted, and tormented. Destitute, Elijah one time had to go live with the widow woman who only had enough meal and oil for her own son to bake one last cake. Now it didn't run out, but that's poor living. Joseph, one time was destitute, sold as a slave into Egypt. We read about affliction. How about Jacob when he appeared before Pharaoh? Jacob said to Pharaoh, The years of my pilgrimage have been many and filled with affliction and toil. The lives of these men were filled with affliction, destitute afflicted, tormented. David was tormented by King Saul for years. Mordecai was tormented by Haman for a long while because he would not bow down to him in the book of Esther. The saints of God have been a destitute, despised, afflicted, and tormented group of people. They wanted it in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. But the Bible has this to say of them in parentheses lest we would despise them in our own hearts or feel sorry for them. Here is God's estimation of them. Of whom, this is verse 38, of whom the world was not worthy. Those men were too good for this rotten place. Yes, God may have allowed them to be tempted, to have suffered, to have died, to have been tormented, tortured, but they were too good for this world. Oh, what a report to have God say, you're too good for this world. What was his report of Enoch? Too good for this world. Guess what he did? He took him home to heaven before his time. Verse 39, And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, everyone on that list had a good report. We don't have to wonder, did God list someone there with a poor report? It says they all obtained a good report through faith, received, not the promise. Don't ever let somebody take Hebrews 11 and apply that to New Testament saints. The sufferings of the apostles cannot be stuck into Hebrews 11. Everyone that suffered in Hebrews 11 has to be part of the Old Testament because it says they received, not the promise. God, having provided some better thing for us who have come after Jesus Christ, who have the kingdom of God in this world through the person of Jesus Christ, God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. They were a glorious group, a faithful group, but they weren't enough. God had a whole other dispensation called the New Covenant where he would deal with men through Jesus Christ and the kingdom of God. Here is the point the apostle concludes with in these last two verses. If those men that did not obtain the promise did not see and know Jesus Christ like we can know Him, if they were this faithful to have withstood torture, torment, affliction, destitution, and every other conceivable torture, persecution, and trial that God brought their way as we have studied the last four Sundays, how much more should we be able to endure God having provided us some better thing, and that is a fuller knowledge of the resurrection of the dead, a fuller knowledge of salvation through Jesus Christ, a fuller knowledge of his revelation, how much should we be able to endure? And yet, sometimes don't we wonder, could we even endure what they endured? They endured 40 years in the wilderness without seeing how God was going to bless them. They endured in Canaan's land without owning enough to put the sole of their foot on. Yet they believed God had given it to them as an everlasting inheritance. They did it by faith. They did foolish things, and I speak as a fool, by faith. They wrought great victories by faith. May God grant that we, by faith, would be as noble as they were. I cannot think of a better chapter to preach on The week before, we have a meeting of the men on Saturday morning. These are some men that we ought to want to emulate. These are the great men that obtain a good report from the Lord himself. And these Hebrews, having finished the 11th chapter, having been reminded of all their ancestors in the faith and of their faithfulness in the face of persecution, how could Hebrews reading this this book of Hebrews ever deny Jesus Christ and go back on the God that had called them into the gospel and go back into Judaism with a lesson like the 11th chapter of Hebrews. I hope that you men will pick out some of these examples and know them well, know the passages, and learn to revel in the examples God has given to us of some true heroes. Men love heroes. God has given us a list of heroes that far excel any heroes of this world. May God bless us to exceed them in our faith because he's provided some better thing for us.